Hello and welcome to episode 8 of the Performance Cycling Podcast. I'm Todd Norwood here with my co-host Jason Hammond. Hello. So I guess uh, we'll start off with our, our little entry topics as we always do. Um, yeah, I have a big announcement uh, and I, I didn't tell Todd in advance. This is brand new to him and it's, it's a big deal. I washed my bike. Congratulations. Yes. Yep. Stick and stand. But you didn't bring it to prove it to me. <laughs> no, you're right. I could have taken a picture. I could have, yeah. I did it though. You'll have to trust me. Do you have like an Instagram you can post that? No. I even like, I took the chain off, did that whole thing. Uh, I was a little uncomfortable with the DI2 derailers. Okay. But I did like spray them with Simple Green. You know, ah, we'll figure it out. $500 derailleur. <laughs> Very good. I'm proud of you. That's, yeah. that's good. A clean bike is a fast And bike. Uh, it's noisy now. It was quieter when it was dirty. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. It should be faster. All right. Can I, can I get my little soapbox that I, I warned you about? Yeah. So, I've already said this. I'm primarily a mountain biker. But, of course, I do ride on the roads a lot. I, and you commute. I commute to work yeah. almost every day. Like I've commuted through San Francisco, commuted through LA. I've got a fair experience uh, playing with cars, or at least interacting with cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, so interestingly, I was out uh, Sunday morning, and just, just cruising, just taking it pretty easy because I'd raced on Saturday. And it's a kind of a, a hill, a kind of peak of a hill, and three-way stop. And there's a rider, oh, I don't know, maybe 100 feet in front of me. And he, he totally just rolls through the stop, like kind of he's making a left turn. He's like on the in the wrong lane to start making his left turn. Rolls through the stop and almost gets clipped by a car that's coming the other other direction. Mm-hmm. I couldn't tell what the car had done, like where the car came from, because I was too far down the hill. Um, yeah. But and so I, so at any rate, uh, this rider proceeds to yell at the driver and you know show him the bird and you know and mm-hmm. so. I'm a big believer that we, as cyclists, or in, in like whatever group of people you're in, we should please ourselves, right? And we should hold ourselves to a higher standard. So I, I happen to catch up to the rider and have a little chat with him about his behavior. Um, I guess that's my, my parental instinct. Yeah, right? like, dad's coming out. Yeah, you know, just just simple, right? Just like, hey man, that's not cool. You probably didn't need to yell at that driver. And you know, the comment back to me was, well, you know, he he rolled the stop, and it's like, well, you did. Too, so you were both in the wrong. So it's kind of hard to hold that position that uh, yeah. you know you're you're right and he's wrong for doing the same wrong thing. Um, and you know, like in one cars are always going to win. They have you know three, four, five thousand pounds of steel. And yeah. <laughs> even like the biggest rider has two hundred pounds uh-huh. going with their bike. So I think that I think the other piece of it uh, that's big to me is you know that driver is not like looking at that one bike rider like oh man that guy on the you know purple specialized is a real jerk it's like yeah. it's all of us right he look, he's gonna see the next bike rider whether it's me or it's you or it's someone else down there like man all these, these guys they're they're terrible they're just reckless they don't pay attention to the law mm-hmm. um, so i think it's it's important right that we're on the road we have the same rights as cars for the most part um so we need to we need to respect them we need to respect them and i think that's how we're ultimately going to be respected right there's always always gonna be a sour apple right you can't can't avoid it yeah but i think you know so much as we can police ourselves and obey the rules um and you know pay attention to the situation i think it's probably better for everybody involved yeah i think you know when when you want to petition for bike lanes or for better street cleaning or you know you want to be taken seriously you need to not uh cause animosity amongst you know the general population it just makes it tougher to be seen as 
a positive community a positive part of the larger community yeah absolutely uh, so unless you really need to say something you should probably just uh you know what what's the value in in doing this stuff other than to you know it's like a mini power trip but not really because you didn't win they're just mad at you and right. you leave yeah. it's yes even you know even if the car didn't see you right and it was just totally blatant bad driving error you are always in the right it probably doesn't even benefit you to scream at them or like yeah, yeah like I, I totally get it right like i've been in those crummy commuting situations where the driver doesn't see you at all and you have to swerve and it's like you're angry adrenaline's pumping probably like yes you may want to yell at them or like make them aware that they almost did you know nail you but if you can avoid expletives and calling them names that's probably for the better in the long run yeah uh and also i would say you're as a cyclist you're responsible for your own safety like yeah i had the right away yeah but i broke my leg Mm -hmm. was you know uh you know what they pay for your you know just like you're responsible in sort of like yeah there are things out of your control but do your best to avoid you know getting hit yeah and i think they talk about this when you're learning to drive as defensive driving right mm-hmm. and it's the same thing it's a situational awareness and keeping your eyes open and like not having your head down looking at how many watts you're trying to produce on a busy road yeah and and i always i'll always sacrifice an interval to not you know be it be in a, a dangerous situation um, because it's pretty hard to race the next weekend if you're, yeah, if you're not yeah, alive. <laughs> yeah, bones or otherwise. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so that's my feeling on that subject. And then um, I had a story. Should should I tell my my story back? Yeah, might as, um, might as well. Might as well go deep on this one. So I had a this guy was basically sit his his. I saw him texting in his car, and he's sitting in. It's like a, a two lane road. He's sitting in a position to turn left into. Uh, shopping center but he's not turning left I'm behind him I'm ready to start my ride and I kind of I say you know probably not the nicest way just sort of like go like please drive um I can see you're texting like uh, you know at least get off the road and his moonroof was open and he heard me and after I went around him he gave me some uh hand motions and some you know uh honking and stuff and it's just sort of uh you know, it's like he was wrong, but also uh, there's not really much value long term in me being mad at him. Uh, sort of like he's still gonna think think less of cyclists. He's gonna have a negative interaction with a cyclist. Uh, so like, yeah, it's frustrating he was in the wrong, but also I could have just uh, like there was space for me to go around him. I could have just you know ignored him. Um, probably would have been better for the community as a whole but that's that's a more difficult situation um your situation seems pretty clear-cut one one would like to think the the thing i played back in my mind is okay so what if what if this guy gets hit right and you know, sheriff shows up it's like so you're you're an eyewitness what what happened here right and like as much as i want to defend the cyclist in that situation i couldn't right if i was if yeah. i have to tell the truth like well he was in he was in the wrong lane and rolled through the stop I, you know, I can't tell you about the car. It's like, that's it. You know, when I got home, I was like reflecting on that. It was like, man, that I'd hate to say that, but that would be the only honest truth, right, of what I yeah. what I witnessed. I'm like, that's that's terrible. But you know, when you go back to like protecting your own safety, defensive yeah. cycling, um, you know, you just don't be in this situation. Yeah, don't don't uh, put yourself in a bad spot. Yeah.
which I think that goes for the same with the racing in the group, right? Like you want to be in a good spot. Yeah. And just like life as a whole, we're getting really philosophical yeah. now, you know, <laughs> don't uh, put yourself in a bad scenario yeah. if you can. So uh, we have two topics today. I guess that's weird for me to say because we always have two topics. Um, but we're, we're going to talk about strength training first, and then um, we're going to get maybe more on our soapboxes on the topic of equipment, uh, just sort of our personal opinions. If you're maybe newer or if you're looking to upgrade what carbon wheels to get, we're not really going to talk about specific brands. Um, we're just sort of more philosophy focused, I think. Yes, generalities until we have, you know, financial disclosures to make about yeah. who's sponsoring us. <laughs> Brought to you by. Um, so strength training first. I personally am a huge fan of strength training, um, and that started from freshman year of college. I just started racing. I just picked up a coach. Um, I think I, like, did one group ride with him, and he was like, you're a sprinter. Um, and now look at me, I'm like a Royer, but, um, <laughs> he, you know, right away he said this winter we're going to lift, you know, we're going to try and get you fit early for the spring season. Cause collegiate starts pretty early, especially on the East coast. And yeah, so, so what they do for E triple C is they, the first races are in the bottom of the conference and the late races are at the top of the conference. Okay. Which, uh, you know, it avoids the snow, but every race is 40 degrees. Um, you know, like they... they it's always 40 degrees. You just have a temperature gradient yeah. as you go to the north. Right. So, um, but, you know, it's like I, I was in the lowest state mm -hmm. and it would be like 70. And then we're driving nine hours to Vermont to race in 40 degree weather. And it's sort of... I, you know, by the time I graduated, we had a couple... Uh, yeah, we'll just do USAC races this weekend instead of driving to Vermont. Um, despite, I mean, the, the roads are amazing there. Um, but anyway, the, um, he had a friend, my coach, uh, at freshman year had a friend who was an Olympic lifting coach mm -hmm. and I got involved with him and he had sort of that Russian style gym where, uh, you know, it's like a converted barn and there's, um, stone everywhere and everything's concrete and, um, there's no, uh, machines. It's all free weights mm -hmm. and, um, you don't. You know, there's no safety bars. You learn how to drop the weight mm -hmm. if you're going to fail. Um, very, like, old school stuff. Um, and that's how I started, and I feel that's the way it should be done. I think that the whole point of lifting weights is to make you a better cyclist. So let's try to do it correctly because on the bike, you're stuck in a pretty rigid position. So if you start to – you know, the big thing with Olympic lifting is you don't have – much help. There's no machines to keep your, you know, knees in line. There's, there's no, you have to control yourself. You have to control your body. Yeah. And on the and, bike, and the yeah, on the bike, it's very similar. You, you know, you don't have anything holding your knees in place. You don't have anything keeping your core tight. He was very like no belts, no, uh, any of this stuff. And that's how, you know, lifting is just as much teaching your body how to control the power as it is. Um, pushing big weights and uh you know it's still something that i struggle with but my power is certainly a lot higher um now i struggle with like very high wattage whereas before you know i think i if i hadn't lifted i would i would struggle with even lower wattage um so that's sort of my philosophy on it i think it's good i think everybody 
I think everybody, I would say, should lift in the winter. Um, one big argument for that is that every professional cyclist has a large amount of muscle mass in their legs, despite being a climber, sprinter, whatever. Um, the least you should do is your legs. I think also lifting is good for postural support. Um, and then also like, you know, back stuff is good. And, um, even this is kind of silly, but you do like one set of bicep curls and one set of triceps and maybe some delts and like, you feel so strong the next day on the bike. I don't know. You know, you just like have this sort of this power and tension in your upper body that, um, you know, maybe it's just psychological, but you feel, you know, really strong. So just, you know, at the end of the day, strength training is sort of reminding your body to fire, you know, the muscles that you have. And, and all, all together, right? Like with a, a lot of force, I think, which is different yeah. than sometimes what we do on the bike, which is a much lower force generally. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like I have to be the naysayer about strength training now, which is, which is really hard. I want to put in one dig. Okay. Uh, about strength training, um, and then we can talk about things I think that are, are valuable. Because on the whole, right, like I think strength training is very valuable for generally the population level. Like I think there's a good value. Like yes, absolutely for mm -hmm. cyclists, right? But I I don't just see cyclists as a physical therapist. I see all sorts of people and all, do all sorts of different sports and activities. And I think there's a, a benefit for you know many many people. Just doing some some resistance training at some level as part of their fitness routine. Uh, so I think the one or maybe two arguments against uh, strength training for cyclists. So one would be, well, so what's that actual peak force at the pedal? You know, under load, and it's really not that high. Like it's not it's not equal to your one RM of squat or even like your like how many the weight you can push for twenty squats. It's it's lower. We, if you can calculate it, um, mm -hmm. Hunter Allen and did a great job in his book calculating out, like, you know, given your crank length and the gear and the wattage and all, all this stuff, what yep. is the, the force? It's actually pretty small, like surprising how small it is. Uh, it's, so it's not near the amount that you're actually pushing when you lift weights. So one argument is, well, you're never really pushing that much force. So is there mm -hmm. a value in, in training that? Um, and then I think the second thing, but we have, we have a way to counter this is potentially you add muscle mass, which may or may not be full mm -hmm. going up a hill, uh, or for your power to weight ratio, depending on, right? Because power to weight ratio in cycling context where it's important, right, is sustained, and strength training doesn't necessarily build sustained power to weight ratio, right? It, it's more about a, a short burst. So maybe your sprint power rate, weight ratio improves. Uh, but then we talked about last time, right? Well, hey, there's this great site that says if you stretch, in between your reps, yeah. <laughs> you don't you don't add as much uh, cross-sectional area, right? Episode not, not, seven. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah. See, episode seven. Uh, you don't have as much hypertrophy, and mm -hmm. so maybe that then we can still get the benefits we want without yeah. having the possible negative effect. Uh, okay, so that's I, like I feel like we had to say something bad about it, right? Mm -hmm. You have to have a counterpoint. But in all honesty, I'm I'm a big fan of strength training. I think one of the big things for me personally, just looking at the research is there's a decent body evidence that says master's level cyclists tend to have low bone density. Mm -hmm. uh, cycling is inherently not a weight bearing activity. Yep. So you don't, like if you're a runner, you're gonna develop you know, higher bone density. Even if you just like regular walking, uh, resistance training is one of those activities that can help with bone density. 
So I think okay. there's a benefit for cyclists. This is like term. longevity. So. Right? Like, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think if you want to ride for a long time, then yep. this makes sense. I think if you want to be a healthy individual when you're not on a bicycle, which I think for most of us is an objective, mm-hmm. uh, then I think it makes, it makes a lot of sense to do something like that. Um, to your point about like doing some upper body weights, I think same thing, right? Like I said this when we talked about flexibility, if you fall off the bike, having some flexibility probably helps you a little bit because yep. your joints can go through a greater range of motion and dissipate that force. Having greater bone density probably keeps bones from breaking, right? Mm-hmm. So I think there's a there's a benefit there. Um, so I'm talking about performance, and I do think there's probably a performance benefit. I think it's recruitment of all your motor units is what you get from lifting heavy weights. Okay. Right? So if you think about your muscles, right? we talked we talked before on previous episodes about you know type one fibers and type two fibers, right? Slow slow mm-hmm. twitching, fast twitching. So you just think it's your your muscles don't all contract all at once um, if you're doing a low effort sort of situation, right? You'll you'll preferentially recruit some of your type one fibers in first. And then as the load of the man of activity goes up, then you start to call in the type two fibers until you you know hit some maximum, right? Until you've recruited not all, but many of the motor units. Yep. And strength training helps you really recruit all of those or as many of those as possible in a synchronized fashion to produce maximum force. And if you want to sprint fast, you need to recruit all those really fast in a repeated fashion and produce yep. the force, you know. On the pedal, so I think I think that's one of the values of strength training, um, and then you know potentially adds muscle mass. I think it gives you something different to do other than moving in circles. There's some benefits for core, um, yeah. probably some mobility benefits as well with that. So yeah, I think it's a lot of benefits. I mean, I, I'm a big fan. I've done it a little bit myself. Uh, I tend to lean more towards the uh, kettlebell stuff now. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's it's compact and it fits in my garage. Yeah. Um, as opposed to like barbells and it it's goofy and it's uh you know that funky uneven weight distribution of the kettlebell uh, introduces some nice balance challenges that i like yeah and you're a big uh, core imbalance kind of guy yeah, i think uh, that's the mountain biking background has probably influenced that yeah i think kettlebells have a lot of value um but so for for now we're just going to talk about um sort of i'm going to answer the prompt you know, okay, what if I want to lift next winter? Mm-hmm. Um, what do I do? Uh, and we're going to talk about the phases a little bit. And this is from Joe Friel's training Bible. Um, and so I guess um, actually one thing on this topic of, mm-hmm. of why lift. Um, when I first was reading Joe Friel's book, I, I think it clicked for me. I don't know if he says it explicitly, but my understanding is sort of um, lifting builds, you know, you get hypertrophy, mm-hmm. which builds the muscles. And then the subsequent training at threshold, subthreshold, turns those bigger muscles into functional muscles for cyclists. Is that, is that me uh, being hopeful or is that like, you need well, the muscle mass and now let's make the muscle mass useful for a sport. Yeah, I guess, I guess I can buy that. I mean, I think there's probably some there's probably a lot of physiology that's happening between that, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's, okay, so I, I took these muscle fibers and then they're now hypertrophied, right? They increased in diameter. Uh, and now I need to, they need to produce force, right? So if I have more muscle fiber, I can produce more force. 
I now have to do some training to get my mitochondria able to supply the you know, appropriate energy to more muscle fiber than it was supplying before, yep. um, which right then upstream means I need to get more oxygen to the, the mitochondria, I need to get more glycogen in there. And, right? So there's, there's a lot of steps, but sure, I think that's a reasonable thing. I need to get the nervous system to you know, recruit these muscles in this very specific pattern that yep. makes the bike go forward. So yeah, I think there's a lot of physiologic steps, but I think that's a reasonable uh, connection to draw between mm -hmm. build some muscle and then make it work for what it is you want it to do. Yep. Um, so the the steps of strength training, um, they start with anatomical adaptations, which is basically just um, not shocking your body, sort of gently saying, hey, you know, we're gonna get these muscles to start firing. Um, this is like, uh, I think usually three by 20 reps or maybe three by 15 reps and just your major movers. So maybe low, low weight squats, um, maybe hamstring curls, maybe body weight squats to start yeah. or technique. Um, mobility. Yeah. Especially if, if you're not terribly experienced. Um, I, like I said, I came up with a coach. I think that you should, uh, you know, I think you should have a coach for your first season. Um, and once you do like maximal weight stuff, you know, one rep max stuff with a coach, you know, then you can start uh, talking about doing it on your own, which is still like more risky than having somebody with you. Yeah. Or like at least have a weightlifting pal that can spot you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, uh, basically anatomical adaptations is um, like two or three weeks of just using the muscles in a structured way, which for people who haven't lifted before could be a bit of a shock to the system, which is why you just want to be gentle. Even I would say if I'm going into the winter and I put on, you know, even like 75% of what I was doing last year, my body's going to hate me the next day. Mm -hmm. um, anatomical adaptations helps reduce DOMS, which is delayed onset muscle soreness, which is that the person says, oh yeah, I went to the gym for New Year's and now I can't walk. Um, and it's because they just overload right away. So, well, for cyclists, I think it may be a special case of things happening there. Right? Like, well, so when we're cycling, it's an eccentric activity. Right? Okay. Muscles are contracting and shortening. When you lift weights, there is an eccentric component, right? Your mm -hmm. muscles are lengthening under the load. And that's one of the things we know causes soreness and, and actually causes tissue damage at the muscular level. So yep. like when we want to do studies to you know, determine muscle damage, we either A, make people run downhill or give them a tremendous eccentric load of weightlifting. Mm -hmm. And we know that will cause some, some tissue disruption and allow us to study it. Interesting. And I don't love the term anatomical adaptation. I guess nerves are part of our anatomy, but I think there's also a lot of neurological adaptation. Okay. Like you're, you're asking the nervous system to fire these muscles in a different pattern than you're used to with a different load than you're used to. Mm -hmm. So I think as much as there's like the anatomy, right? The muscles, bones, joints, I think that's what generally we think of when we say like anatomy and movement, right? But mm -hmm. I think there's also a big neurologic component that's happening out of your mm -hmm. nervous system and your, your brain is sending different signals to, okay. to ask the muscles to do different things. Um, so after that you do uh, maximal transition, which is, you're now transitioning to maximal strength. 
Um, this is when you start to lower the reps, 8 to 12 reps, and you're, throughout this period, it's usually four to eight weeks, you're, um, you're just building the weight up slowly. Um, and the goal of this is you're transitioning to heavier weights. So um, usually you would do, um, you know, not specific numbers, but maybe 50% of what you did last year um, or 40, you know, 40 to 60%. Uh, starting and then you start to build up to 75, 80% by the end of the period. I guess it just kind of depends on how you go about it, right? Because like if you look at this, so shorter, lower, higher up counts, like you're starting with the anatomical adaptation phase, but it's more about building muscular endurance, right? As you get into that 15 and 20 range. Um, yep. And then as you drop down uh, and you get into the 8 and 12 range, now you're talking more about muscular hypertrophy. And then you drop even lower than that, right? To like two, three, four, and like the three, four, five, six sets. Now mm -hmm. you're talking about maximal strength building. Um, yep. And so I think you know you can if you want you know if you want you can do like based on last year's norms that's fine and, and figure out where you're fatiguing out around 12, or you could always go and do a, a one RM right and see or mm -hmm. right, you can approximate a one RM with like a six RM. Right? There's formulas yep. out there that you can use to calculate and say. And I don't, I don't have to go in there and lift the maximum I can one time because it's, one, it's hard, right? It's hard. It's really hard. It's a big effort. And you want to have somebody to spot you. So there's yep. there's ways to use a formula to back out and say, okay, I, I did eight reps of this weight. What's my theoretical one RM? And then you can back down and figure out yeah. and what even, you want to target. You know, even say you do this eight RM and calculate your one rep max, you... You know, you don't need to actually do the one rep max to validate it. Right. It's sort of, right. Um, because it, you know, it is sort of dangerous to put that much weight on, and um, depending on how much you can push, it's. Yeah, you, you're. I think you want to be pretty experienced before you're really doing uh, one RM yeah. testing. And, and like I said, like you want to. I said earlier, right? You want to put yourself in a good position. So you know, safety first. Yeah. Right. Make sure you have somebody spot you and all that stuff. You're appropriately warmed up uh, before <laughs> you go and try to do those big lifts to, to validate, right? I think it's it's much easier to figure out what your maximum five-second wide is on your bike. Okay? Yeah. Find, find a spot where you can open it up and let it rip, and okay, it is yep. what it is. And um, after maximum transition, you then go to maximum strength, which is, it's usually only about a month. Um, it's it's weird to think that you're, you know, you're probably lifting eight times, um, and each time you're, you know, putting... <laughs> like 15 or 20 pounds on more uh, is what I noticed last year. Um, and you're doing three to five reps. Some coaches have, uh, I think, you know, one. my coach last year had like a stair stepping, like first set was five reps, second set was four, down to two. Mm -hmm. So I do four sets and each time was, you know, X percent more weight. Um, and the goal of this, like you said, is maximum strength. So you want to you want to teach your body to recruit as many of these um, motor units mm -hmm. to all fire all together. And I think what's really most interesting about this, to me, just from a scientific standpoint, is when you do that really heavy lifting, it actually doesn't create hypertrophy in the same way lifting in that 8 to 12 rep range does. I know you gave me this argument before. I also find it pretty fascinating. Right, and it's uh, it's been I mean, it's been researched. I think it's plenty of evidence to support that, and it's a lot of neurologic uh, activation that's happening, right? It's refining, like, you have X motor units, you just weren't using them all very efficiently. You weren't getting yep. all fired together. 
Uh, and I'm, I've, I've heard this and I've heard the, uh, I've, I've heard evidence and sort of like one-off case studies about this, but it's like, we don't actually recruit all of our motor units in a given muscle all the time, because actually, if we did, we'd probably cause injury to ourselves. Because uh, we have so much muscle, like in a lot of like, there's enough muscle fiber that you probably cause damage. And there's there's goofy like one-off stories. Like, you've heard the one-off story about the the mom or dad that, like lifts the car off their child, right? Yeah. Uh, and like it doesn't seem possible. And there's also like a physics explanation because you're not actually like it sounds impressive, but you're not lifting the car yeah. up, right? You're pivoting it. It's still it's still a lot of weight, right? It's like a non-trivial deadlift. It's probably most people's yeah. like more than their one RM by a lot. Yeah, and I heard one story about a guy who was a serious weightlifter, and it he calculated it it as being you know 100 pounds over his previous you know deadlift one rep max. Yeah. Um, and I've heard another story about it's like it was a hiker and a, a large rock fell on him, and he like he pushed it off um, and actually like tore his pec because uh, of the floor. Right. And then you know somebody. Like you point out the rock they moved and they you know estimated right and like you know like you approached the world record for bench press hmm. with that. Now you can there's other situations like was he flat on his back and there's you know other things going like like a mechanical advantage right sort of like and so point being like, yes absolutely we have a lot of strength in reserve that we don't hmm. use um, and doing those maximum strength lifts is about recruiting as much as that is safely possible, right? As much as the central governor is going to let us yeah. use in that situation. And just as much the, you know, vastus medialis, which we're all obsessed with, uh, you're also recruiting all, all these other muscles and kind of reminding them as well to fire, you know, mm -hmm. in coordination. Uh, so it's not just the, the big muscle. And um, yeah, so the other, the one argument you made to me that you didn't mention is um, wouldn't weightlifters not weightlifters, uh, Olympic lifters mm -hmm. in the Olympics, wouldn't they just be like massive? Uh, if if right. um, you put on muscle mass doing really heavy. Um, and so that like, they are pretty big, but you know, if, if what, five times a week you're doing one to five reps, um, you'd expect them to really be pretty massive, I think. Um, yeah. if, you, if you do that for 10, 15 years to become yeah, years, years and years and years, yeah, absolutely. And then it's like, Yes, they are big, but there's some of them, you know, in the smaller weight classes, right? They're like, oh, it's not cyclist lean, but like yeah. surprisingly lean and not, I mean, obviously they're lean low body fat, but like, you know, like they're not yeah, as bulky like total masses as, as, as you would, yeah. you know, as you might envision uh, for somebody that's lifting that kind of weight all yeah. the time. Yeah. So, and that's just because they stick to these lower reps as opposed to that eight to 12, which is more going to... Um, expand so, the fibers. So if you're looking at uh, our Mr. Universe or whatever uh, our former governor used to do, yeah, uh, then so yeah. so um, Arnold Schwarzenegger is doing. He's doing a lot of eight to twelve. Okay. And you know maybe had some chemistry too there. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> uh, probably not. He's probably natural. Um, <laughs> so uh, and then after maximum strength, you go to strength maintenance, which is uh, basically limited high intensity strength maintenance is as you start to approach the season you don't want to destroy your legs the good thing about um the maximal strength period is you're probably in base so you're never going to go over you know 200 250 watts depending on your threshold so you can kind of destroy your legs mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and you can still make it through your your base mile rides 
So once you start to get into, okay, we have a race in a month, um, it's time to get, you know, cycling legs. That's when you go into strength maintenance, which a lot of people will not, will, will mostly abandon, I think, um, a lot, like pretty much all amateurs. And I think a lot of pros as well. Um, I had, I talked to a guy when I was in college who was kind of a trackie and he admitted that it was, he felt it was unrealistic to lift during the season. Um, which, you know, there are other podcasts about lifting and, you know, they had a strength coach on from UC Boulder who said, I think all my cyclists should lift two or three times a week through the whole year. Um, and it's, I think the big thing with whether you choose a lift or not lift is a lot about, can you coordinate it with your coach? Um, because if, if you're lifting and you're not really telling them and they want you to do VO2 max intervals, and you can't complete the VO2 max intervals, you know, you, it can affect your other training. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a training, right, is about setting a plan and then completing the plan at the end of the day, right? Like, mm-hmm. we can set up the plans. We have a pretty good knowledge of the physiology. We have power meters. So we can set up really great plans. We can track them uh, using various tools, and we can predict an outcome, really, about our fitness fairly well, right? Like if you do the plan, yeah. like the expected outcome, you have, you have a fair degree of certainty around that. And mm-hmm. if you're lifting and that's, you know, cutting to your training time or your, yeah, your training time is cutting to your lifting and there's, there's some other physiologic mechanisms that maybe don't allow to, you to maximize both. Um, so like as far as enzymes that you have when you're lifting versus when you're doing endurance activity. But, you know, that aside, like if you're, not following one of your training programs the way you're supposed to, or your whole training program, then your results will be less than you were hoping for. Yeah. Um, So be careful with the strength maintenance. The big thing is, um, like for me, I I think my, you know, my sprint wattage, which um, I'd say is sufficient at this point, um, but, you know, and I'm not, I'm not touting myself as a sprinter, but it, it did drop like 100 watts uh, in the transition from since I stopped lifting, uh, which, you know, if, if your bread and butter is sprinting, yeah, you're going to want to do some limited high intensity. Uh, if, if you're like a Royer or maybe, um, someone who's better at three, you know, 90 second to five minute efforts, um, you know, you need to decide for you as a rider and maybe the races that you're going to be in, whether you want those extra hundred Watts or you want, an extra day of VO2 max intervals. Um, but, you know, that's something to discuss with your coach. Hopefully you have a coach. <laughs> I, I think that, that goes nicely when we're talking about the uh, long-term athlete development, right? Like training yep. specific engine for, for your events. Yep, and especially as you get close to the event, you need to be training for the event. Yep. So strength maintenance also is for um, working on personal limiters. And this is something, I guess technically I am in strength maintenance because I am doing um, personal limiter stuff. Um, if, if you want to know, I have uh, some posterior chain weakness. Um, so most of my lifting is on the backside of my body. Um, and it's just mostly just uh, reminding stuff to fire and a little bit of, you know, hopefully strength gain over time. Um, but it should... Um, I'm even like right now thinking it's maybe making my training a little more difficult. And so it really should not inhibit your training. It should help facilitate it. Mm -hmm. Um, so if, if you feel like 
man, you know, my hamstrings are too sore to do my on bike workout, you should probably um, do a little, you know, take a little bit off the top. Yeah, yeah, a little bit of uh, reflection on what's, what's going on there. Take, take inventory. I mean, I, so personally for me, that's like commuting is always this fine balance, right? Like commuting is the way I get miles, but then I have to balance it so I'm just not adding fatigue to the system needlessly, right? Yeah. So commuting needs to be a, a recovery ride for me. Or mm-hmm. right, it, I can't, like if I go zone three, I'm like, I need to just make myself tired for later in the day, like for later for another workout later in the week. So. Um, same thing, same thing with like lifting, right? You, you want to balance it with what your other objectives are and when is that next race and what's the objective of the race? What's the course look like? All those yep. other pieces and get back to it. Yep. So um, I'm going to talk about um, what a typical workout day looks like for me in the gym and then also a little bit about different exercises that should be done. Um, so first, a typical workout day. What I do is I go on the treadmill for five minutes. You know, go to the gym, put your stuff in the locker. Uh, you know, I didn't know if I'd have to say that. But... Um, <laughs> One would think some things are obvious. But... You know, get your water bottle. Um, go. I go on the treadmill for like five minutes. I used to run just sort of as a fun, like, can I still run sort of thing, you know, being a cyclist. And then I stopped because I was like, I actually don't like running. Um, so now I walk on the treadmill. And, you know... The... <laughs> it's very pedestrian of you. Yeah, well... <laughs> um, I make, I usually, you know, in the winter, usually the heat's on, so that's a little nice. It's, um, now it's actually like too cold in the gym, uh, which is a little frustrating, but I, I always like to feel a little bit of perspiration, um, whether like on my forearms or armpits or whatever. And that's how I know it's like, okay, so the, the, the body's kind of woken up a little bit. What is flowing a little bit? Yep. And then I do my dynamic workout, um, warm up, sorry. Um, episode seven, <laughs> you know, uh, we talked about stretching last episode. Um, dynamic warm-up, I usually focus on the legs mostly for that. And then what I don't normally do, although some people say is good, is to do like a light lift. Um, I'm yeah. skipping ahead. Like a warm-up set. Yeah, That's so um, of course for cyclists, your biggest, uh, the th- biggest thing you're training is, is your hip extension. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people will do a, you know, a really light or maybe body weight um, set of their hip extension exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, which I don't normally do that. I, I prefer to just like give me the heavy weight. I'm getting under it. Um, I'm a I'm a light I'm a lightweight start type. I go grab the bar or something and just go through a few reps just to get get into the movement. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's from uh, my my Russian uh, coach. I just really remember like um, yeah like not much of a warm up. Like oh you're sweating okay get under the bar you know sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah that's just probably how how I came up. Um, so do your sets and then, um, usually want to do a little bit of foam rolling, especially if you're worried about recovery. Um, it it can make you feel a little bit better, but I think, did you say that it doesn't actually really? Yeah, maybe foam rolling kind of goes in the, uh, inhibitory camp with stretching. So maybe, maybe it's decreasing that weight you can lift. Hmm. I think the, yeah, the, the research, like when you look at the meta-analyses, right, for foam rolling, it's not exactly uh, an overwhelming majority in favor. Okay. So, let's see. I mean, look, if you get a nice placebo effect out of it, then great. Right? Yeah. We've talked about this before, too. Like, 
hey, if, it, if you foam roll and you feel better after you foam rolled, by all means, keep foam rolling. Don't let me tell you not to. Yeah. Uh, if you foam roll and it doesn't, you have no noticeable difference than not foam rolling, then maybe save yourself time mm -hmm. and, and get on with your workout. Yeah, so I have down here maybe stretch or roll. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, sometimes you're just so fried that it's like go home and have dinner, you know, as opposed mm -hmm. to. I'm spending an extra 15 minutes stretching and um, but stretching between your sets so you can uh, yeah reduce your hypertrophy. definitely yeah if you're if if you're gonna um if you're really worried about your muscle mass you should do what our study said which is do static stretching before static is that stretching correct? in between sets and in between okay um and then what I do is I, I get protein and carbs asap afterwards um but that's back to the the bro lifting stuff. Um, yeah, I think the, at least for the aerobic type stuff, I think the evidence is that it probably doesn't matter unless you're going to exercise again that day. Yeah, I agree. And that's um, also in the USAC um, coach's manual. It says um, they found a study that said like the whole four to one ratio thing. Mm -hmm. uh, cyclists got the same recovery from a five to zero ratio. Uh, so, you know, basically there, the, the one who, the person who wrote it was like, yeah, so it's clearly just calories in um, that, that matters. That was his conclusion. So, I mean, I think the one argument I've heard in favor of protein, I think this also goes to something we've talked about before. Uh, I think you mentioned at one time making sure you're having actual food and not always like mm -hmm. a protein shake or something that's manufactured. Like, yeah. those, those things are undoubtedly convenient, right? Like you can toss it in a gym bag and it's easy and it's there. Uh, is thinking about the digestive system. And if you just throw like straight carbs in, then it's like straight carbs straight in. Whereas if you have some protein and some fats and some yeah. fiber, that actually like makes it more of a slow drip that your body can actually be a little bit more receptive to. And like, mm -hmm. it now comes in at a rate that your body can, can manage versus like a fire hose and you're trying to catch it in a little bucket. Yeah, so the... Um... Like, I don't know, have you taken a caffeine pill before? No, I did that during coffee. <laughs> right. I like, I like to enjoy the flavor that goes with my caffeine. So, um, that's, so one of my friends before races will take a caffeine pill instead of um, coffee. But um, I, so I've taken, I've taken caffeine pills before and it's like instant, like you're to the moon 10 minutes later and then an hour later you're like, uh, and it's, it's the same sort of, um, if you have all of this all at once, it'll shoot you straight up, mm -hmm. but also your body will clear it out faster yep. uh, because of the concentration gradient. Um, whereas, you know, coffee, maybe you drank it over an hour on the way there or something and, mm -hmm. um, it's this slow build. And so you just slowly absorb it in and, um, you know, that's the same thing with carbs and the, the whole thing is, um, Glycogen takes a long time to be made, uh, so you you almost always need to have carbs available for your body to make more glycogen. So um, if you just give it a sugar bomb, you're not you're gonna just burn through it all or use it or, or you know yeah store it as fat. You're gonna get rid of it, and then you're not gonna be building glycogen in an hour because you'll you'll have processed all that stuff. Um, whereas you have something more complex, so you have fats and stuff then the absorption is slower and you have carbs to be turned into glycogen the whole time. Yeah, it's a nice slow trickle as opposed yeah. to like a rush. 
So I used to, I, I mean, I had success with, um, you know, a big pile of sugar and a whey protein and then an hour later a meal, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, I don't do that now and I don't really enjoy that, but you know, it works. And you know, there's a lot of people who say that's what you need to do. Um, but you know, like we said, just food and yeah. probably real food. Yeah. Yeah. Real, real food's been around a lot longer than sports drinks. Yeah, that's true. And, um, and then the last thing is I try and not stay static for too long for the rest of the day. And that's just, maybe that's, um, just me trying to, you know, like I want to prevent doms. That's the goal, but maybe that's sort of just superstition on my point. No, no, no comment. I mean, I guess blood, blood is flowing, right? And if mm-hmm. blood is what's going to take the nutrients to the muscles to facilitate the recovery process, theoretically, the like it's the active recovery, right? You're a little bit more active. You're yeah. not just like parked on the couch or in your desk. Yeah. So, sure. We'll, we'll say net, net positive. Yeah. Um, just, I, I guess I've had a few like really bad experiences of like coming home from lifting three hours of homework and you stand up and you're like, sweet mother of God. <laughs> sort of experience um so yeah just you know try and get up try and move around kick your legs out a little bit um for the rest of the day um so that's like a typical workout day not too big of a deal the thing we didn't talk about was the specific um exercises that you should be doing and Todd I bet you have some input on this but I'm gonna start with uh Joe Friel's recommendations so the big things that he says is hip extension which that's the bread and butter of a cyclist. Um, both hip extension and well, the, he says hip extension, but it's a dynamic. Hip and extension. Um, yeah. So so the examples were like um, step up okay. or squat yep. or one more that I'm forgetting. Hopefully like deadlift or lunge or. Oh, lunges was the first one. Or split squat. Or, yeah. Right. Like there's a lot of different ways that mm-hmm. you can get that combination of hip and knee extension together, right? That simulate the pedal stroke. Yep. Um, I mean, personally, I, I think that lift is a fantastic exercise. I think you you want to be good at doing it before you put weight on the bar. Right? You want to be able to mm-hmm. stabilize the core and make sure that the back's in the appropriate position uh, so that you're doing it safely. Or you like think even using the trap bar is nice uh, so you minimize the torque at the yep. spine. Um, so one way or another, doing a deadlift, I think, is a great exercise. I'm also a big fan of doing single leg activities uh, to introduce some stability into the equation, whether that's the step up, uh, it could be a single leg squat. I mean, a split squat is kind of a single leg, but it's kind of not. It's like, a, like an intermediate because you're still supported there. Um, yep. I the, did, um, when I first started, I would do like four or five sets of regular squats and then I do four or five sets of split squats right afterwards. And, uh, yeah, well, you know, I got pretty strong from it, but, um, I think it it was cool to do the split squats at a, at more than 50% of what I was doing with the, um, with the standard standard squat. squat. So, uh, I'm not exactly sure. Like it just seemed to isolate the, the muscles a little bit better. Um, but maybe that's because I was core limited or, um, so I had some other limiter with the regular squat. Yeah, so that, so those I think are great. Uh, you know, like my one of my favorite is uh, like single leg remaining deadlift, so like straight like straight leg uh, with that. I think that's a great. It's only hip extension, but I think it's a great yeah. core stability exercise, getting the glutes and the hamstrings going for you. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, right, also you get the, the trunk in that nice um, horizontal position. Right? Like yeah, so that's down, um, like, you know hip hinging from the hip, just like as you're reaching out to your handlebars. So that's yeah, one of my so favorite exercises. Like you're on one, one leg. standing on one leg, yep. and you just bend over at the waist. Yep. And the big thing is you don't bend over at the back, which is really common if you don't have glute engagement uh-huh. or your glutes are tight or whatever. Um, so usually you know you have a mirror on the side. Make sure that you're rotating at the yep. pelvis. Um, and then you have to engage your core basically the whole time or mm-hmm. your lower back will start to move and you yep. get back pain. You need good, good hip stability, right? So your, your hips aren't swaying from side to side either. You're, yep. you're hinging the hip, but your hip is really rotating. It's not there's no sway. Mm-hmm. Your hip's not dropping or lifting. Um, so I like that. I also like kettlebell swings. Like from between the legs up. Yep. up. Yeah. And the main action for that should also be the glutes. Yes, I think that's the like one of the things. Right? That, that's a big hip extension exercise. Like, yes, you're holding onto the weight in your arm, and yes, your arms go up, but you're not pulling that weight up with yeah. your hands. It's I mean, it's like the true Olympic lifts, right? You're you, the driving force is coming from your legs. Mm-hmm. Do you move? Does your bar body move underneath the bar? Do your arms move? Does the bar end up over your head? Absolutely, all that happens. But mm-hmm. right, if you look at Olympic lifts. A lot of actions, the most of the actions come from the legs, yeah. and the arms are doing some guiding of the bar. Like you can't have too thick arms to do Olympic lifting, but right. it's a lot more like if you like. So the shoulders keep the weight in the right place, right? The legs keep it stable and everything. But the leg, yeah, yeah, the movements come from the legs. That's where that drive's come from. Mm-hmm. And I mean that makes sense. The I mean the legs are gonna like be able to produce much more power. Yeah, and that's I mean honestly, that's any sport you look at, right? Like if you look at somebody. Uh, serve a tennis ball. If you look at somebody throw a baseball. Mm-hmm. Like if you look at all these sports, uh, hit, you know, I think hit a baseball, hit a golf ball. Yeah. All that force is being generated from the ground up, right? From the feet and from the hips. Well, where you, like, what are you gonna push off of? Right. Yeah. You have to, right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I think, yeah, it's got to come from the legs, and the hips are a big driver there. And then, you know, whatever happens at our arms or our hands and whatever sport we're doing, that that force is being transferred. And the, yeah. the arm and hand is, is controlling it in some way, um, mm-hmm. but it is not necessarily generating the bulk of the force. Yep. So um, we have like the hip extension. I like step ups, although squats is like classic cycling. Mm-hmm. Um, we have these um, single leg Romanian deadlifts, mm-hmm. is what you called them, uh, and kettlebell swings are good. Those two, I would say, make sure you're, you know, you, you should be form. squeezing your butt. Yes, yes, <laughs> um, and your, your glutes should know that yeah. you're doing that exercise. And, and so if you're sort of swinging through the motions and it's not really, like even, I mean, I think I have pretty good glute engagement, but I'm doing like 35 pounds on the Romanian deadlifts, um, which like, yeah, my glutes are burning afterwards. So if you're, you know, if you're not into lifting and you're doing 10 pounds and you don't really feel it, um, you've, you've probably gone, gone a mess somewhere. Yeah. You should be able to get it pretty, pretty quick if you're focused on it. Okay. And, and there's a certain awareness that goes with that too, right? When you just like put the weights down for a second, go to quiet space, look in the mirror, check your form, make sure you're doing that right. Mm-hmm. And then really try to be, you know, conscious of feeling the glutes activate and like consciously to like squeeze those muscles, like do whatever you need to consciously engage that. Yeah. And, and get that feeling in your mind and remember it. And then when you start to add weight, just kind of check back in. So, okay, do I still, do I still feel that? Is that what's driving here? Yep. Or does my back hurt? <laughs> and if your back hurts, I'm sure you're going to run. Yeah. And if you finish the set and your back hurts, yeah. 
should probably drop the weight a bit yeah. as well. Um, so then the other thing is upper body stuff, which is um, depending on, you know, Joe Friel says you can do chest press, which I, I don't think any cyclist should do chest press. <clears throat> yeah. I, I'm not a big chest press, bench press fan. Like I, I, mean, okay. I guess if you're in the NFL combine, it's great. But, you know, for, for us as cyclists, I don't see a tremendous value. Like, even with mountain biking, it's actually it's more pulling the bar than, like, there's yeah. some pushing on the bar. But, like, the, cause we want to, like, I want to generate a lot of force in mountain bike situation. Probably, like, I want to pick my wheel up, not necessarily push my wheel back down. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think more, we should be more on pulling posterior chain versus mm-hmm. necessarily... Chest, but I mean, look, I I will admit to doing push-ups. It's it's, it's a convenient exercise to do, mm-hmm. but it's easy. Right? I'm not putting a lot of body weight. So yeah. Not. So the you mentioned posterior chain. I think um, rhomboids also come recommended. That's your uh, rows or yeah, like, seated yeah. row or something. And you basically squeeze your shoulder blades together. Mm-hmm. And this is so that on the bike. You know, you should you should be squeezing your shoulder blades together a little bit on the bike. Oh, just keeping them from rolling around your trunk forward. Yeah. Um, and and then also uh, lats, and that was something I did a lot of, a lot last winter was um, either lat pull down or pull ups. Mm-hmm. Although pull ups are usually so some of these the upper you know hip extensions are you want to go through the heavy weights you want to start light and then build up to one to five reps for stuff like your um your lats your rhomboids you want to just stick you basically stay yeah but i think also think about how you're using your rhomboids on a bike they're kind of holding you up for hours on end Mm -hmm. they need to have good endurance they need to do many reps at a low weight yeah think about it like so i think it's also about being specific they talk about being specific in our training for a race this is thing about being specific in our lifting for the purpose that the muscle is going for to serve our, yeah. in our sport, right? Like, so it's very different ask if you're like a boxer, right? Like mm-hmm. you, you need your upper body to deliver an explosive force several times over, right? Yep. That is generated by your feet and your hips. But, <laughs> you know, it's, it's got to deliver that force. Whereas for us, like, our body doesn't have to deliver a tremendous amount of force at any, any time, but it does need to hold us up for a long mm-hmm. time in our core. Yeah. So the, the cool thing about lats is, you know, it starts under the armpit and goes all the way down to your back. And, uh, when you pull on the bars, you engage, you should be engaging that. And that's Mm -hmm. sort of, um, the way I think of it is sort of like dropping your shoulders. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, on the bike, you drop your shoulders and you, if you bring your elbows in, they can start to engage your lats more. I think a lot of reasons that you see people with their elbows out riding is because, they're engaging their chest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, from the pecs a little bit. Yeah. That so if you if you're one of those riders who keeps your elbows out, probably you can't do a pull up. No, I'm gonna safe. say. It's not so you can elbow the guy next to you. Yeah. Well, only in the last you know five k's. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think that the cool thing about lats though is um, if you're flexing this muscle that goes all the way down your back and you're also able to squeeze your core. You've made your torso very stiff, which, um, you know, if you're pushing very hard down on the pedal stroke or on the pedal, the pedal wants to push you back. Yeah, the pedal wants to push, is pushing up with equal force against you, right? 
Um, thanks, Newton. Mm-hmm. And um, so you you're sort of falling away. Like say you're pushing with your right foot, the your foot's almost pushing you to the left yeah. uh, because you're not pushing straight down the center of the bike. And the whole point with that is if you're pulling on the bars and you're engaging your whole torso, you can resist that reactionary force mm-hmm. onto your body. And then and it allows you to put more into the pedals. Um, this is sort of the philosophy of having a good core or engaging your core mm-hmm. is that you'll see newer riders almost um, like push off the saddle when they pedal. Like mm-hmm. what's resisting that motion away from the pedal is just sort of like, kind of like, I, I don't know how to explain it, but you're just sort of like um, trying to, you know, I don't know, use your butt to not you well, know, so, push away. I mean, so if you think about it as, you put more force down on the pedal, right? it, it wants to lift you up. So you, you could actually see if you have a, um, a force mat or a, a force transition on the seat, like the, the harder you pedal, it's actually, you're going to actually like lift a little bit out mm-hmm. of the saddle, right? Cause you're, just because of the counter force. But, but yes, to your point, I, what you're, what you're observing is somebody who's not engaging their core and like it, their leg is pushing down, but it's also pushing them back and they kind of look like a noodle. And you see uh, videos of like, I saw one on Facebook today of like um, a track sprinter Mm -hmm. and she like just the power of her core, the lack of motion um, when, you know, she's she's doing a full gas sprint and and to see the engagement and, and the lack of like, like the strength, the lack of motion, mm-hmm. um, you can tell that it's something that top riders really take advantage of. Yeah, and it's free energy. I mean, not free, but it's, yeah. it's probably super, it's like the rest of us are giving away wattage, yeah. and top riders are conserving that and getting into the pedals and going forward. Mm-hmm. So the last thing is um, core, which that's um, another thing that Joe Friel says that you should lift. I... Like, okay, it's not lifting. Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, I guess you can lift. But, I mean, there are, there are core exercises that involve weight. But I don't mm-hmm. sort of think of it as right. lifting per se. And, like, I think a lot of people have core weakness already. So they should be doing a specific routine to address their weaknesses, whether it's, like, anterior, pelvic tilt, posterior, pelvic tilt. Um, if they have, like, hunchback, mm-hmm. like... Core can remedy a lot of those problems, but um, usually you have a specific routine for that as opposed to like generic core stuff. I wonder though if everyone could benefit from something like hip extension or hip flexion exercises like hanging, leg lifts, or um, well, something so, like that. I mean, I guess to me, I think about core, right? I think that's a that's like a loaded term, right? Uh, okay. Now who you talk to. Hanging leg lifts are great for your uh, your rectus abdominis, your, your six pack muscles. Uh, okay. I always uh, tease patients like, well, your your core is more than your beach muscles, right? Like mm-hmm. rectus is great if you're going to the beach and you're taking your shirt off, but um, it just flexes your spine. Uh, I always think like core is other muscles, it's transverse abdominis, it's the it's the obliques, and you think some people would even include you know glutes and lats in the definition of core, uh, be a little bit more extensive. If I think about the purpose of the core muscles, just anatomically, what, what do these muscles do? Uh, I think of them more as a, a stabilizer. They, they prevent rotary motion, especially the smaller, like 
the smaller ones that really have stabilizing roles um, versus some of the ones that are like more mover, like the rexodontin is a mover, right? It moves, um, where some of the small ones close to the spine, they, they don't have good mechanical advantage, so they can't do a whole lot of moving. So when they mm -hmm. tighten, they, they just make things stable. They keep things from moving. So when I think about that, I think that just like what you're saying, like you, here, here you are on this bike and you're, you're pushing down with your leg and it's pushing back up against you, wanting to make your pelvis rotate, your core needs to be able to engage and prevent that rotation so your leg just goes down, the pelvis don't rotate back and up away from the pedal. Mm -hmm. So I, I think about these core muscles as keeping things still. So to me, core exercises, core training is about putting some force, you know, introducing some force that makes your trunk want to rotate and then resisting it. Okay. Um, just to, simply, uh, like, so like a plank, there, there is a rotation there. It's just gravity's pushing down on your spine, causing you to go into yeah. uh, more lumbar lordosis. Mm -hmm. right? And you have to resist and that. You have to resist that yeah. force, right? Um, so like that's the rotation. Like if you're in a side plank, right? Part of it is it wants to like bend you into a C, but there's also a stability point of like not tipping forward and end up on your face or end up on your back. Yeah. And there's a rotary component of getting everything to work together. There. And then a good um, example I'm thinking of is like mountain climbers, mm -hmm. especially I would say slower mountain climbers mm -hmm. um, based on your idea of like trying to get our stabilizers to actually work. Put some resistance on your legs. I think we've talked about this before off, mm -hmm. off air, but um, trying to have a little bit of resistance on your feet so your hip flexors are working, but then yeah. um, being able to keep that position and keep that core stable or trunk stable. Yep. Um, and the only other thing that we didn't mention is that, um, well, we mentioned this, that, you know, you're lifting to be a better cyclist, but w what we didn't mention is that, um, you want your lifting to simulate cycling. Mm -hmm. uh, so some, some ways you can do that is, uh, put your feet the same width apart, uh, during your squats as you would have them on a bike. Um, you can just guess. I don't think people actually, uh. <laughs> You have to put two like pieces of tape on the floor. Wait, exactly. Am I supposed to be like measuring the distance? Do I have to calculate the distance from my feet on the bike? And... No, I don't think it's. <laughs> I don't think it's that specific. But yeah, like yes, yes, be specific. I think that's the mm -hmm. or very similar. Like I think it's uh, you walk if you've seen like a, a sumo deadlift, right? It's a real yeah. wide stance. And that's probably not going to translate well to cycling. Yeah. So like, what's the value in a sumo deadlift over a regular deadlift? Um, it's not there for a cyclist because you, you, you know, you're, you're never going to have your legs that far apart. Right. That's right. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's one reason why step ups like really clicked for me is it really feels like the three o'clock position. Mm -hmm. Um, especially, you know, depending on the height of the block and stuff, you can really yeah, like, yeah, you can, you can modify and you can get exactly what you want yeah. out of it. And I, I think last season towards the end of the season, I started to do once a week, a, like step ups. And it, I really felt like my three o'clock was a lot stronger, um, and because you're you're simulating it that exact mm -hmm. movement. Um, also, it's a single leg movement, and you have to engage your core um, during that. And that, you know, you're when you do it on the bike, your body just remembers. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah. plus one for me for step ups. Yeah, well, you know, the the brain's pretty clever, so yeah, it'll pick up on those on those patterns. I mean. Brain's basically a big pattern recognition machine. 
in many mm -hmm. ways. So <laughs> give, it, give it a pattern and it will it will apply. Yeah, but this is the subconscious part. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. That's, that's good. It's good against pattern recognition subconscious too. Mm -hmm. That's why we make these snap decisions sometimes, right? Yeah, blank stuff is pretty. Uh, it's, yeah, fascinating. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that does apply in like some race situations, right? Like when you see the top racers, they they aren't think they're just doing. They're not thinking about it. Yep. And that's definitely blank stuff. And even I catch myself sometimes with, like, I forget that I had to teach myself certain things. Mm -hmm. um, which I mean, it's all yeah. Your brain is just like. You know, it knows what to do. Yeah, it's it's just making the calculations for you, even though you're not necessarily aware. You're, you're maybe aware of the output, right? yeah. but not the not necessarily all the all the factors that went into calculating. Mm. Right? Like, is this a good move for me to be in? Like, and even like, um, yeah. Well, that's maybe a little more conscious. Well, maybe yeah, I'm not no, that good. I, I think I, I think there's both, right? I mean, I think mm. there's some certainly there's some conscious right way of like. Okay, I know who the top guys are on the GC right now, or I know who like who's beat me in prior races. I know who's succeeded in breakaways in the past. But I think there's also some subconscious way that goes into like, how are my legs feeling today, right? Like, mm. do my leg like right like brain is doing some assessment and saying, how do I, how are my glycogen stores, right? How how is my energy today? How do I feel? Mm. I I feel like today is a good day for a breakaway, right? And that weighs into like your conscious calculation of like. Yeah, there's like three top guys there. There's nobody from my team. This is a crucial juncture of the race. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta get on this, right? Yeah. And that's I'm thinking back to districts last year now when I, I had a feeling of going and I, I overrode it mm -hmm. and, and then I was wrong. So I wonder how much that blank stuff is um, really useful. I think, well, my example was, um, you know, somebody sort of moves into your space in a crit and you're, you're instantly already moving mm -hmm. to make space for yourself. I've had a few of those moments where it's like, I didn't think about avoiding contact, you know, it just sort of happened. Mm -hmm. um, but before we get down this path too far, um, we have to get to our second topic, which is uh, equipment stuff. So uh, basically... I feel like it could be a whole, a whole other episode yeah. or two or three or the rest of the season but you know we can we can delve in a little bit and see see where we end up uh, yeah see how fast we devolve into <laughs> talking about favorites so uh, the, the big thing I'm gonna focus on road racing stuff that's where I have the most um, luckily okay I can do track really quickly um, because <laughs> there's not that much equipment. yeah there's like it's uh, get a carbon fiber frame <laughs> you know there's there's five manufacturers um, any of the five are great. They should be aero tubing. Um, and then, you know, there's like three brands like Zip, Mavic, and uh, I think Fast Forward are like the three. So just pick, you know, pick one. It doesn't matter. It's fine. There's not very many permutations of possible bike yeah. setups in the world. Nope. And uh, yeah, and then learn how to race, <laughs> um, which, I mean, that's really going to determine. Figure out, figure out what gear works for you. Yeah. Um, since you can't shift. You know, yeah. You have to type it sometime. It's really like, yeah, I'm I'm having difficulty just going to do the Wednesday night races because um, I like, what gearing do I, I don't even really remember. It's been a while since I raced track. I don't really remember what I was racing. How fast are these races? They're one, two, three races. So um, maybe a little bit slower than what I'm used to. It's always, it's the worst to be stuck on a gear. You're doing like 90 
the whole race and your sprint is like 110 you know it's like oh this is awful it really should be like a 140 150 rpm sprint yeah but okay so there's track we did it um (laughs) i mean okay there's too many disciplines in mountain biking so i'm only going to talk about cross country okay i think that like we talk about enduro and downhill and then there's just like well, what about general all-mountain riding? And there's, there's too many wheel sizes. I want to preface this with, this is our feelings on, on this topic. And um, sort of, we're trying to get away from the marketing because we have some experience with this stuff. And, uh, and anybody can convince you, need, convince you you need a certain piece of equipment. But at the end of the day, some will be... 5% improvement, some will be 2%, some will be 1 and 0 and negative 1. And uh, so hopefully we can wade through this stuff a little bit with our with our own experiences. Yeah, so I think with, so with mountain biking, I've been racing for a long time. Uh, I did my first race, actually, this is going to sound crazy, especially like in 2019, on a rigid bike, no suspension, and rim brakes. So like that's, nice. that's, that's where I started. <laughs> um, and then, then I moved up, I got a hard tail, so I had some suspension. With rim brakes, and then I got a full suspension at some point, and then disc brakes, and yeah, yeah, yeah all, all the stuff um, yeah. along the way, and different wheel sizes, and so. So we're in Northern California. Yep. Um, so at like entry level, hardtail. Absolutely hardtail. Okay. I mean, it, it, full suspension is fantastic, but if you're just getting into the sport, hardtail is place is where to go. Twenty um, nine. I so I think you're you're either gonna end up with twenty nine or twenty seven and a half. Um, I'm a really tall rider, so I've, I like always kind of gravitated to 29s. Just felt right to me. Like, oh, this this wheel size <laughs> makes sense. I'm a tall guy. It's a big wheel. Like, this is this is yeah. great. Um, you know, I think I can see for smaller riders where 27 and a half makes sense. Um, it's like it, it's bike's just not quite as big, so that that's fine. I think 26 is probably going to disappear in the next five years or so. Hmm, just, that's interesting. On, on the way out. Well, um, was it so uh, growing up on the in the Mid Atlantic? I think 26s are the preferred, uh, or well, no. I think it, I'm I'm trying to remember from when I, from when I worked in the bike shop. I think actually 29s were the best because there's a lot of uh, rocks okay, on yeah, the, so the courses. And then and then the argument was actually out on the west coast. 26s were popular because of switchbacks, um, mm-hmm. which maybe so, it's it's fallen out of favor. Honestly, in the it's just a different technique for riding the switchback. Okay. Uh, I learned right on 26, and it's like, okay, how way I did it, and then I got 29, it was awkward at first, and then, like, okay, yeah, now, and they've also made a lot of improvements in the geometry of the bikes okay. um, over time, uh, so it handles better, they've made, like, the original 29ers had really, really long wheelbases, and now they tighten them up a little bit, so it turns better, and so, I think, you know, as we go forward, there's always progress, so I'd say, like, yeah, hardtail for sure, um, you want disc brakes. I don't, it's pretty hard to find yeah. a non-disc brake mountain bike. I would say if you can get hydraulic disc brakes, that's fantastic. They're a little more work maintenance-wise, but mm-hmm. performance is um, worth that investment. Yeah, I, I, think, I would agree with that. I think the other just big, big thing, like most entry-level mountain bikes right now are uh, a single ring up front, and they have this massive wide ratio cassette. That's great. It's like totally brainless. You just shift on one side. Yeah. You don't have to think about ratios. You have two buttons. There's no there's no front derailleur to deal with. It's like it's fantastic. Chain the front chain rings and the clutch type derailleurs give you really good chain retention. Mm-hmm. So that's that's great. And I think that's been a really big thing um, as far as technology. When I think about like if you ask me like okay, well, what are the three things that have like 
changed in your like the like big changes in mountain bike racing that you've seen in your experience I'd say um, disc brakes for sure I'd say tubeless tires with good sealant in them okay um, right it's like I remember getting like a, a puncture flat in an inner tube in, in the race like you know early on like that, that wouldn't happen now that that small puncture right of a little thorn you get sealed up by the sealant instantly mm-hmm. and you, you you may not even know right that that happened so I think that um, so is that like mid-level tubeless is yeah middle middle of the road may not injury but you can always convert them now it's pretty okay. easy um, and I'd say don't, the only other thing, especially for an entry level rider, like you may not may not be racing necessarily. Like this is like a something that's dividing the cross country crowd right now. I think is dropper post versus not. Okay. Um, you can see on my hardtail, I'm a a high post guy. It's not a drop post on the hardtail. Mm-hmm. On my other my full suspension bike, it's more of a, a bigger, longer travel bike. I do have dropper post. I'd say as a as a new rider, having a dropper post is fantastic. Um, it really lets you and explore the space of your bike and, and get into some more body positions so that you can go down steeper hills and, and get you know, get used to it. And I think, you know, if you want, as you're more experienced, then you can go to a high post. Or, you know, if you like it and you like riding more technical or more challenging trails, then great, keep the keep drop posts. Like, the weight difference isn't that much anymore. If okay, the, so the main disadvantage is the weight. Yeah, and if the frame is uh, drilled out for it, then fantastic, right? It's it's pretty it's pretty stealthy. It's like hidden in there. You you know you don't see the cables, so it's clean. Uh, so yeah, I'd say go go for that if you if you could. Run with it. Yeah. Um, that's that. You have like, anything that's, else? That's my that's my high level like entry level mountain bike. Yeah. I think we could like go so deep into the weeds. I mean, that's like <laughs> I mean, that's like one episode, right? It's like. We can just go through like okay, let's let's break down mountain biking and let's break down road biking. Like, mm-hmm. Talk about all that stuff, but I don't want to go too too far off into the weeds right now. Yeah, because um, otherwise we'd be here. Well, I got a lot. Of, <laughs> well, and the other thing, I, I would just have to say okay because uh, you know I, I've sold a few mountain bikes, but you know it seems like it's got it, the knobby tires on it. Yeah, or... it's like look if you want to ride not on the road, you should probably buy this. Is the extent. Yeah. Got some suspension, smooths things yeah. out. Um, so road stuff, I think, um, you know, I am, I race. I, you know, my goal is to optimize for winning a bike race. So um, when it comes to racing stuff, you know, some of the stuff that I see from my teammates who are, you know, cat fours, maybe cat fives. Um, you know, one, one big thing is even just like tires. Uh, this is something that is usually overlooked, but you should have like a, a decent uh, race ready tire. So the industry standard standard is GP 4000s. Um, 5000 now? Well, I don't think 5000s are. So I have 5000 tubeless on my race wheels and they're very fast, but they're also very soft. I don't think they're good training, racing. Um, so okay, so you're you're going from the practical standpoint, like yeah. I want a tire that I can ride some train miles on, but it's also going to be good on race day. Yep. So um, the GP4000, there are a few other manufacturers who make this sort of race training, um, high quality tire, and uh, you know they're all 40, 50 bucks per tire, um, which is pretty good, and they la- they should last like 3,000 miles or so. Um, and yeah, the, the, like they're within 5% of the best. That's the, I think the big thing for road racing in my opinion is just get within 5% um, and you know, let your legs do the rest and put that extra money towards a coach. 
Um, uh, you know, I think that's probably, you know, dollar for dollar, there's probably more value in a coach than an equally priced, fancy upgrade to your bike. Yeah. It comes down to performance. And, uh, I mean, if you have money for both, then you should probably do both. Well, but <laughs> yeah, if, you, if you want to invest in it, then yeah. Yeah. So the, you know, even tires are good, you know, don't ride your four seasons or your armadillos or your gator skins or, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, it's not even inertia cause the, well, the, Roller resistance. yeah, the hysteresis yeah. loop is so big. Um, so yeah, you know, you can ride those, you know, if you, for some reason, get a lot of flats, one, watch where you're riding a little bit better. <laughs> ride on different roads. Yeah. Um, don't keep riding through like I had like three flats in a week and I just stopped taking the, they were doing construction on a road and I was getting a lot of flats in that area. And yeah, I just had to, you got to go to a different road, I guess. Yeah. Um, but tires get, yeah, get moderately fast tires, wheels. Um, you should have carbon wheels. Uh, I think if you're going to race, you know, your first race, you're probably okay, but probably, you know, by the time you're a four, you're a three, you want to be getting carbon wheels. You can get, um, used ones, you know, there's a lot of like online places to get used stuff and, um, you should, I, I think generically 40 or 50 millimeter deep is what you want. That's like, you can race anything on those. Um, usually lighter is better, but also some of the manufacturers that are held in high esteem have kind of heavier wheels, which could indicate, you know, they're more stiff They're um, Durability matters. So at least, yeah. I mean, like, my, one of my things with mountain biking, I think it's funny to bring up tires. Like, mountain biking, you have, like, super light, thin tires, or you can have, like, super burly tires. And to me, like, the super, super light tires are never worthwhile because if I puncture it, like, I'm losing time in the race, right? Like, yeah. so find that sweet spot, I think, with your tires and wheels, right, where it's, like, yes, high performance, but also sufficiently durable that you're going to make it through the race. Yep. Um, you have the benefit of, of mutual support a lot of time on the road race. So if you do get a puncture, it's not like the end of the day, but it does make your mm -hmm. life a little more difficult for the mountain biking, you're self-sufficient. So it's like, yeah, you might want to like, I will sacrifice 50 grams on my tires. So I feel a little yeah. bit better about the probability that it makes it to the finish line without a puncture. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, learning about tires based on your training can also help. Mm -hmm. um, so like if you're getting a flat once a week, you probably shouldn't be using that tire in or, a race. Or you should like, Top off your tires because yeah. you're, you know, you're, you're pinching you're all pinching. the time. Yeah. So, you know, but that this is another reason to train is to learn for a race. Mm -hmm. It's not Absolutely. just the um, yeah. testing your equipment for the races before the race yeah. is very important. Yep. So, yeah. And then, um, you know, I like to do my Friday like prep, hour and a half prep ride the day before a race on my race wheels um, in case, you know, there's any brake rubbing or whatever. Mm -hmm. and, um, or you're not 100% confident with your wheels. Or if you get a flat on the on the <laughs> that yeah. day, it's almost like, well, there was probably something wrong. Don't tell me something. Yeah. yeah. I, um, I'm saying I always try to like ride my race setup the day before or two yeah. days before the race to make sure that I have a chance to also make the adjustments that I need before <laughs> I, I go to the start line. And then I try and like not touch it at all. Yeah. Um, I mean, ideally, it's just working, right? Like, ideally, yeah. you ride the day before, everything's smooth. And but if you need, need a little time to make a couple little tweaks, great to do it. Yep. Maybe test it again before you head off to the start line. So other stuff like your frame, like I said, if you're if you're really focused on performance, just get within five percent. You'll you can see the arrow graphs and just pick one of the ones that's close to the bottom that you get a deal on. Yeah, and I mean I think it's for some people fit's gonna matter. 
Right. Like my my life is pretty easy. Like I'm I'm tall. Like I, I always just pick the biggest frame. Like yeah. Is it extra large? Is it 60 centimeter or like 61? Whatever it's the biggest one to make. That's what fits me. Like I guess I'm I'm tall enough that I'm the top frame size, but not so tall that I need a custom frame. Yeah. Um, I think for for other riders, like some companies have different geometry jacks that get longer or shorter top tube or different like steeper mm -hmm. or slacker seat angle and you know, like some I don't know it's like shoes right like somebody fits a Nike shoe better somebody fits an Adidas shoe better so yeah. it's like so there may be some variation I think the other thing that's useful being that uh, you may may or may not agree had more for the bike shop I think finding a bike shop that will be supportive of you is useful right like that you know you can go back to if you have warranty issue has good you know yeah. good mechanic staff to help you make repairs if you're not confident in your ability to do the mechanical pieces yourself. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's an important piece too to look at as it, as you're thinking about making a purchase. Like, yeah, is this a good bike shop? Or are they reputable? Can I go back to them um, yeah. to get stuff serviced? Absolutely. And um, on the topic of frames, I personally, if you're racing, you should have an aero frame, in my opinion. Um, there's maybe one in a hundred races that uh, can justify the maybe the pound i mean i'm riding an aero bike at 15.5 right now i mean yeah that's... um you like you don't need to worry about the weight of an aero frame at this point and you don't even have to worry about the stiffness there you know originally when carbon fiber first came out people were like it's not as stiff as aluminum now carbon fiber is stiffer than aluminum also it's lighter than aluminum also um yeah. now they can design bikes to be just as stiff uh, that are aero bikes as um, and and have nice vertical compliance. Like yeah, the the engineering of carbon fiber is amazing. Right? And what what it's allowed the bike mm -hmm. companies to do as far as ride quality and characteristics. It's, yep, and you can save like a lot of watts. Um, my you know one of my friends is he thinks it's really funny because his race style is not about saving watts because he's sort of that decisive move sort of rider of like. If I pull this move off, I'm going to win no matter what. Mm -hmm. um, so for him, it's different than maybe like, you know, I like to use as little energy as possible in a road race. And then, you know, that gives me more energy for the finish, um, which that, you know, arrow, you're going to save 10 or 20 watts, which is going to turn into two or 300 calories by hour three. You know, those are 300 calories you'd like back, um, mm -hmm. you know, if you don't have them. So I absolutely think you should be riding an arrow bike. Um, as long as you know you can get your fit right, because if you can't put off the watts, none of this stuff matters. Right. Yeah. If you if you lose forty watts trying to get like make the position work, then yeah. the twenty or thirty you're saving is still a net loss. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and get a coach. <laughs> um. Yeah. No. I mean, I think that I think we can agree that's probably dollar for dollar like the best upgrade that yeah. you could make as far as performance goes. And not just uh, like fit, like not just doing their workouts, but you know typing out what happened in your race and then talking to them and them saying, yeah, like you weren't at the front at the end. And, you know, and even just having someone who's like honest with you about why you didn't do well in the race is going to be way more important for your race performance than um, any of these upgrades. So. I mean, I think I've said this more, more times than you'd said, but I think the, the reflective piece of, you know, what we're able to do now with the data that we have from our power meters mm -hmm. and the other, the other things are heart rate monitors. So self-reflection, of course, is very important, but I think also having someone who has an experienced ear and uh, can listen and can point you in the right direction uh, is, is huge. Yeah, and um, trying to think of other stuff. Um, 
I got a new saddle um, recently. My old one had like one of the fins was bent, and that's because I sit uh, like not quite straight on the saddle. But the new one is uh, like a composite uh, base, and then the top is like the thinnest padding they have. It feels really nice. Um, I like the thin padding. Um, some people, what? Uh, no, I think saddles are interesting. I mean, like I've I've ridden all sorts of different saddles. You know, and like I've ridden some saddles where like you look at it objectively, I think you're kind of getting to this point. Like, how could that possibly be comfortable? And like, whatever, the padding's in the right place. The the, the shell sags a little bit, or you know, has some bend to it. And it's it's surprising. So I think like one is like don't judge it by its cover, but it's probably like also don't always take a recommendation from a friend because their yeah. their sit bones and your sit bones might not be in the same place. Yeah. And like, oh man, this is the best sell ever. Mm, yeah. For them, yes, that that may very well be true. But mm-hmm. the, the the best sell ever for me, you may think it's terrible, and that yeah. has nothing to do with like the saddle itself necessarily, right? There's like how the saddle meets our anatomy. And for me, it works, and for the next person, it doesn't. And I think that's a tough... Yet getting the right saddle is tremendously important. And I think I've definitely seen people either from you know, fitting perspective or even, like, I remember, like, in the bike shop, uh, like, oh, yeah, like, biking's kind of uncomfortable. Okay, well, it doesn't have to be, like, it's uncomfortable because you push yourself really hard. Like, well, great, welcome <laughs> to the club. Uh, like, no, the saddle hurts. Like, try this other saddle. Oh. Wait, my butt doesn't have to hurt when I ride a bike. Yeah. No, it doesn't. Like, that's not that's not part of it. Like your underside shouldn't go numb either when you're riding a bike. Yeah. You should just feel to sit on the seat and should be like sitting the like not sitting on a couch, but it should bug you. Yeah, it should feel pretty nice. Yeah. And um, I think the other thing is like in contrast to what you're saying, there are some saddles that most people, you know, yeah, like there's yeah. a pretty good chance this one will work for you. And uh, I mean, your local bike shop will be able to point those out. But um, yeah, like if, if that one that they say this works for most people doesn't work, like I'm really sorry, but you're going to have a bit of a, a trip to find the right one for you because um, you're one of the, the outliers that has yes. to have a unique saddle um, that's perfect for you. I guess the, the nice thing with the internet though, there's, there's a lot of people like, all the outliers can post their reviews on the yeah. you know, hundreds of saddles and you can get a lot of input though, right? Like, also, yeah, there's a lot of people who do saddle swaps and the one that you accidentally bought, send them, they'll send you theirs and see if that theirs fits better. And um, you can try all kinds of sizes and shapes and um, brands. So. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I know runners do this a lot uh, with running shoes. Like they find a pair, right? Like oh, Nike made this pair mm-hmm. of running shoes this year. And they buy like three, four, they buy multiple pairs of them because inevitably, like the manufacturer's gonna change that style next year, right? Yeah. They're not just gonna change the color, like gonna change the toe box a little bit, and you're gonna try it, like, oh, this isn't cool. So I think the same thing can go for bike saddles. And no, I'm not trying to sell bike seats, like nobody's paying <laughs> me for this. But like, honestly, if you find a seat and you're like, oh man, this is the most comfortable seat that I've ever ridden on, I love this thing, you might wanna buy a couple. Cause yeah. It's not out of the question that next year, who the manufacturers is like, yeah, it was okay, but it didn't sell enough, so we're gonna change it. Yeah, and or um, we had a lot of 
we had a lot of people it didn't work for, and so like it almost worked for. Like right. I know um, we got a lot of returns, so we yeah. have to make it anymore. And now you're like high and dry trying to find this thing. But I think even worse, it's it's like um, oh yeah, people complained it was like a little too wide here, so we narrowed it out. And then you right. sit on it and you're like, no, it was actually perfect where it was. Right. Um, and, and then you're the person who didn't want the change, but they changed it nonetheless. And then you're just SOL. Yeah. Unless you bought four of them. That's right. Um, <laughs> So I know it sounds like a crazy investment, especially with bike seats, you know, like, a, mm-hmm. you know, a moderate high level bike seat can be anywhere from like a hundred bucks to several hundred bucks, right? Yeah. So depending on what, you know, what you find, uh, you could be investing a fair amount to get a couple, but if it's comfortable and it works for you, it keeps you on the bike, um, mm-hmm. then I think it's probably, you know, worthwhile. This is something that you're, you're really excited about doing and you enjoy. Yep. And then the last thing that, well, two things to like keep your drivetrain clean. Um, I just cleaned my bike, uh, big announcement. And uh, there are a few lubes that are um, like lower wattage lubes, which, you know, maybe cleaning a couple days before your race, putting this faster mm-hmm. lube on could be good. Um, although I, I tend to use thicker stuff when I'm just training because uh, it, it like kind of feels better shifting and also mm-hmm. it's like lower maintenance. And then the last thing is cleats. Not cleats, shoes. Oh well, we can talk about cleats too. Um, like the the pedal cleat system, I. Yeah, one. Make sure you replace your cleats uh, every They're once in not, a while. Not meant to last twenty thousand miles. Yeah, and um, if you if it ever feels like it's getting a little too easy to unclip, um, you should probably replace them. And then um, pedals, I I've transitioned to believing that um, tighter, lower tolerance pedals are better. Um, I originally had speed blades and then, you know, you could look at my knee and ankle and they're fishtailing mm-hmm. throughout the pedal stroke. I think these looser, um, looser pedal systems, they allow you to get away without pain, mm-hmm. but they also sap your power because they allow you to buckle your knee. They, they and, allow for inefficiencies. Yeah. So, um, there's a balance in there for everyone, but I've started to, to I've started to move towards, um, tighter pedals. And I think that they, you know, they allow me to notice when I don't have a good pedal stroke. No, you get feedback. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I think that's about it. Shoes. Yes. some about shoes. Oh, shoes. Um, I think you should get used shoes. Um, this, is, this is interesting because somebody's broken them in for you. Uh, no, not, not for that reason. I think the big thing is that you can get shoes for like half off or less because people like sort of stigmatize getting um, used shoes, but you know, it has a couple scratches on the bottom. I, well, I think you should get carbon fiber shoes. A lot of the lower models are going to be plastic sold. Um, I think that you can get a top level, like four or $500 pair of shoes for like 200 because people walked on them on gravel and they have a couple scratches and you have these people who want to buy new shoes every year. Mm-hmm. And so it's a year old pair of shoes that, you know, okay, these people who buy shoes every year also aren't riding all the time because uh, yeah. <laughs> they're more in for the vanity of it. And so I've gotten some great deals on, like I have two pairs of high end shoes that like I got both of them for like a hundred bucks each just cause I was on the lookout for them. And mm-hmm. so now if I crash and scrape up my shoe, I have a, a second a, duplicate a pair. Yeah. Um, but you know that team car right yeah (laughs) and i have my mechanics so i can swap one yeah Yeah. uh no Uh, (laughs) but yeah i think you know you should get carbon fiber you should look at the high-end stuff and you should look at you know 
make sure the the damages are cosmetic, mm-hmm. but be okay with cosmetic damages, um, definitely. That's that's an interesting take, and I think for me, the way I've always justified buying new shoes is I look at a pair of running shoes, like a good pair of running shoes, it's like hundred bucks, right? And you just replace them, and like you know, several every so several hundred miles, every you know, like multiple times a year, you run a lot, right? And I look at how much I ride. If I was a runner, I'd be like going through you know four or five pairs of shoes a year potentially, right? For the volume that I ride, and I go. My bike shoes last me several years. So if I if I do the math, right, like what's my cost if I were to buy running shoes versus my cost of buying this pair of bike shoes? Yeah. Well, you know, like I'm I'm coming out okay. Now, mind you, I spend lots of other money on things, yeah. um, bike equipment, whereas if I was riding, I'd just buy some shorts and shoes and go yeah. down the road or trail or whatever. Uh, but that's kind of one way I, I look at it and, and justify mm-hmm. is like, yeah, I've had some I've had some pairs of shoes for like eight years, right, or nine years, yeah. and it's like, oh, they're still work, you know, and once they're out of racing service for me, I turn them into commute shoes, mm-hmm. and so then I extend their life even more, so I think you can, you know, if you're a reasonable wearer of shoes, you can get uh, a really good lifetime out of a, mm-hmm. a, a high-quality shoe, pair of shoes, so I just look at it as an investment that I'm going to use for, for a long time. Yeah, the, um, the other thing that I just thought of about um, the timeline of stuff, I think for me personally, once a piece of equipment is five or six years old, not just should you maybe be a little more wary of any wear, like if you're looking at used equipment, mm-hmm. any wear on the brake tracks or like frame breakdown or anything, um, it's also going to become outdated technology about that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, this is 2019. So if someone's saying a 2014 thing you know, I, I can expect maybe a year out of it, depending on what I want to do with it. You know, if it's a time trial piece of equipment and it doesn't really matter, uh, yeah, I'll just get it. And, you know, if it dies, it dies. But um, I think you should start to be wary of, of buying frames that are much older than that or wheels or anything like that. Yeah, and I think especially if you sort of talk about the things that get clamping forces, so like your stems, your handlebars, seat posts, those things have a, a wear life, uh, you know forget exactly the numbers that Thompson publishes a great thing. It's like the it's kind of the expected wear cycle of those components. And, and when you sort of play, I can't remember off the top of my head exactly what their numbers are, but it's probably a lot less than you think. Um, and it's like, yes, part of that probably has to do with marketing, but it's actually primarily safety driven because those things are under, under load and like, yeah. you know, I think about things, you know, the list of things I don't want to fail on my bike suddenly, they're, they're they're all on the front of my bike. Handlebar stem, like front wheel tire, fork. Um, like yeah, if I get a rear flat or I blow over a spoke, whatever, like it's not that yeah. big of a deal. Um, but like if my handlebar snaps, it's kind of a big deal. Like there's there's probably only one outcome from that. Yeah. Which is like me on the ground. <laughs> yeah, and then on the topic of handlebars, um, I think you should, unless you're really at a high level, you should be getting aluminum bars. And they should be a little narrower than you think, and you should stick your elbows out when you're close to people. Um, no, like seriously, the um, aluminum bars are the best option because if you hit the ground, um, you can just rewrap them. Carbon bars you really should replace if you hit the ground with them because you can get micro cracks that go all the way to the stem, and then you're going out down a descent and it just is gone. And so there's more than one story of that. Yes, absolutely. And if you're going to use carbon, you should own a torque wrench. 
So that's interesting. I have, I mean, I have carbon bars and my bike came with them and I need to buy a, a second set so that if I crash in a, a stage race or something, I can put the, the second set of bars on. But, just buy an aluminum set as a backup. Well, I mean, they're, oh, that's right. they're fancy. Um, yeah. So, uh, I mean, hopefully they have an aluminum version, but I suspect they don't. Um, but my shifters don't like they move a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can't even crank them down hard enough because sometimes carbon is also harder to get well, a grip on. That's why there's, um, I need to the, get some the, of the, the carbon paste. Yeah. I need to get some oh, paste. You're, you're, you're in luck. I have some in my garage. Okay. Um, but I think, uh, I, I've, you know, to counter your story about the guy's handlebar breaking, I've had multiple stories of people who under, they, they don't under torque. They torque to the right amount yep. and their equipment slips. Uh, one guy, you know, he's like in talks about a pro contract, mm-hmm. uh, seat slips back cause he torqued it to just, just to the number, yep. you know, messes up his knee cause he does a hundred miles with his seat, you know, an extra two centimeters back. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know. I, I guess we, it, it would be irresponsible for us to give, um, advice that doesn't align with the manufacturers. But I personally give it a little extra turn. Well, a little extra quarter turn there. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it depends on the material, probably. Uh, it depends on the context, yeah. for sure. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, you got to be careful about equipment slipping. But you also have to be careful about just cranking the snot out of it. Yeah. yeah. So one. Okay, here's another hot tip: if you're making noise when you're working on your bike. You've you've done something wrong. Like if you're like grunting to yes. like tighten something, or um, loosen something, or yeah. Except the bottom bracket. That's my gonna, only. I was gonna say like maybe a bottom bracket or like the crank. Uh, well, depending on what crank setup you have, uh, maybe the crank bolt, the fixing bolt there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think the other piece of this is like if if that's the case. You may have forgotten to put grease on. Yeah. Well, you messed in. up at some point. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yes, there's, yeah. Either you're like, yeah. you forgot, like, righty tighty lefty loosey, or it's the first threaded. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah the, you're, you're, when you you're crank this knot out of the pedals. Yeah. 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 <laughs> make a mistake on that. Like, oh, right. That one's reverse threaded. <laughs> Gotta go the other way. Uh, or but, even like, um, you know, you're doing your rear derailleur cable. It doesn't need that much. You know, if you're making noise, putting the bolt on the cable, like the, the cable the, itself. The, yeah. It's like, that's um you're yes. gonna get punished later when you try and undo it or, or when or your when cable, cable frays or, yeah. yeah um so yes i think that's a good that is a very good um little thing to remember like 
I'm working really hard with my wrench right now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm probably working too hard. Like something, something's probably not right. Mm-hmm. right? Everything's made designed to be hand, you know, yeah, like more, just, more just your wrist strength sort yeah. of stuff. Yeah. You don't have to be uh, a bodybuilder, uh, Mr. Yeah. Universe to tighten your bike down the torque. Yep. So that's, uh, that's probably good for today for equipment stuff, I think. Yes. Until, um, until some other episode, uh, yeah. we can, we can go deeper into equipment. So we're, we are now currently, as of today, equal on the number of episodes as uh, Star Wars episodes that have been released. Okay. And it's um, also, I don't know. What, 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 number eight? Like May the 4th uh, racing yeah, we just, we, just missed, we just missed that. May yes. the 4th be with you. Yeah. Um, yeah, but there's a new Star Wars movie this year, so we're going to have to do another episode before the end of the year. I think, I think we'll get <laughs> okay. there. I know, well, the bar is low. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, on that note. Um, Until next time. Until yeah. episode nine. Yeah, rubber side down, all the usual stuff. Have a good ride this week. And we'll be back. Yeah, see ya.